<laughs> Thank you, worship team. Nice job. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts chapter 14, verse 21. And while you're turning to Acts 14, verse 21, I'm going to turn to Matthew 28. And I'm quite sure this is very familiar territory, but just listen up here for a second. Matthew 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That, as you know, is the Great Commission. It's the first general order for New Testament Christians, including every New Testament Christian in this room. And it's the first general order for the overall corporate church of Jesus Christ made up of all the believers in the world today, regardless of denomination, color, country, or culture. And when you look at that statement the Lord makes, there's only one command. You realize there's only one command in the Great Commission? It's make disciples of Jesus by going with the gospel so people hear and believe by identifying those who have believed publicly with Jesus and His church, and then by teaching, edifying, uh, catalyzing their spiritual growth with the Word of God. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to finish our consideration of Paul's first missionary journey. And we're going to see, as we finish our description of Paul's first missionary journey in 48 and 49 A.D., that he and Barnabas are focusing exactly on the command of Jesus here to make disciples of Jesus by going, baptizing, and teaching. Every year, usually in January, sometimes in February, we do a message called the POGs of TBF, Purpose, Objectives, and Goals. And we basically start with that statement, make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. And so what I'm going to tell you today is this. The first missionary journey, first missionary journey of Paul was, was, uh, not the end of what God's been doing in the world. It was the beginning of an enterprise, Linda, that continues to this day. First missionary journey is the first time we've got a concerted effort to get the gospel out as widely as possible, not just to Jews who had the Old Testament, but to everybody, Gentiles too. And that effort, that mission continues today even on this street corner. So we're going to emphasize that the end of the first missionary journey was just the beginning of what Christ did, is doing, and will do through his New Testament church. And it's our turn. Yeah, all these links in this chain leading to the end of the age and God demonstrating and vindicating his control and sovereignty over the universe. And it's our turn, Ed. It's our turn. This is your turn. This is your generation. This is our generation. And so it's pretty exciting to read that Paul is doing the same kind of stuff we're saying we need to be doing today as we try to obey and fulfill and, com- and contribute to the fulfillment of the Great Commission. 
Let's pray before we dive into the scripture today that will be teachable uh, to God's word as we always do. Um, and also let's pray for those who protect and serve us, both uh, locally, our peace officers, our firefighters, and also our active military. Okay, And uh, Sean Meadows, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Thank you. Yeah, you know, before we jump in, uh, the NFL football season is well underway. Um, and the New England Patriots are undefeated, but they do have some issues. And actually, are a lot of indications they're getting cocky. But uh, I'm going to show you not top seven. I'm going to show you top five signs. The New England Patriots might be getting cocky. Their secret, Raleigh, we're talking about the Patriots. New England Patriots are undefeated, off to a good start. Um, but there are signs they're getting cocky. They're getting a little overconfident. And so let's look at some of those indications. Their secret game plan for every game on Sunday is posted on the team website by noon the previous Monday. They're that cocky. I didn't say these were funny. We're just trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Number four. Last week they fired their old Romanian place kicker and hired a new Canadian field goal kicking donkey. We're going through all five of them, whether you like it or not. The general manager of the team has a big corner office in the complex. The, the general manager has already ordered a new diamond-studded shelving unit to display this season's Super Bowl trophy. Okay? That's getting cocky. You know, cockiness and pride is the antithesis of spirituality, so you want to watch stuff like that. Number two, to make regular season games more fair, the Patriots have decided to spot all their opponents 21 points. They just start 21 to nothing, and let's see what happens. And finally, and hold the applause, we are, I'm going to stop. Rather than focusing on offensive and defensive plays, their practices emphasize the techniques needed to execute flawless post-game Gatorade showers. That's what they really are working on, okay? Yeah, the uh, the end of the first missionary journey was just the beginning. And what God is doing in his church continues to this day, and we can contribute to that. Uh, first missionary journey uh, began in April of 48 A.D. It went through September of 49 and it validated the amazing fact that the New Testament church and the believers that make up the New Testament church, regardless of color, country, or culture, is the vehicle God is pleased to use to bring salvation to all who believe. What did uh, Paul preach about salvation in the first missionary journey? Well, in Acts 13, 39, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, being offered to you. You want your sins to be forgiven? You can have it through Jesus Christ. And through Him, everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, is freed from all things from which you could not be freed by your own good works, even through the law of Moses. Now, the first missionary journey started in Antioch, of Syria, and that's important to remember because there are two different cities named Antioch that are involved in this first missionary journey. Uh, have you heard about Syria? It's very much in the news. 
Mr. Assad, who's a horrible butcher, has used chemical weapons on his own people. And we had said, if you do that, there's a red line. We won't let you do that. And then we let him do it anyway. And as a result, things like ISIS have developed. And now the Russians are in there. And it uh, sounds a lot like the book of Daniel to me. That's just me. But uh, all the missionary journeys, one, two, three, start at Antioch of Syria. And Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, who would later write a book of the Bible named Mark, left Antioch, they went to the seaport of Seleucia, went to the island of Cyprus. And that's where Barnabas was from, so he knew his way around quite well. And they went across the island, back, uh, and then back up to what we would today call Turkey. The Romans called this little part of Turkey Asia. Today we talk about Asia as a whole continent, but they used it for that part of Turkey. But Paul and Barnabas and John Mark went to uh, Atalia, which was the port, and then about 15 miles inland to Perga of Pamphylia, like Duncan of Oklahoma. That's Perga of Pamphylia. And what happened there? At Perga, Mark decided, I want to go home to mom. I'm done. I don't want to be a missionary anymore. So John, Mark, leaves them, goes back down to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas move on, and they go to the Galatian churches of Antioch, that's Antioch of Syria. That's Antioch of Pisidia. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. That's where we're going to start today. Then they backtrack. They go back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Perga, and they sail back to Antioch, but they don't go to Cyprus. So that's the first missionary journey. And that's not the end of what God's doing. It's just the beginning of what God's doing. So let's pick up where we left off last time. Look at verse 21. After they had preached the gospel... To that city, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe, uh, the city of Derbe, had made many disciples. They returned and backtracked to the other three cities. Just look at that little first part of verse 21. Paul and Barnabas, after a close brush of death, uh, with death in Lystra, go 60 miles away to the next city. Remember, Paul was stoned and left for dead. Remember? In Lystra, but they go down the road and keep preaching the gospel. They got one play, one message. The message is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. All who believe in him can have the gift of eternal life. And they just keep going on. They use what they've got to do the best they can. And God makes up the difference. And in Derby, we're not told much about what happened, Steve. We're just told they go to the city of Derby. We know they're in Derby because of the previous verse. Which, by the way, Derby... That's kind of a strange name for a town, isn't it? That's just me. But uh, but they went to Derby, and it really is a real place. And they preached the gospel, and it says, uh, and they made many disciples. Now, what was this thing, Michelle, that Jesus told his church he wanted us to be doing in the Great Commission? One command, three participles of means. Make disciples by going with the gospel identifying believers with the church through water baptism. Water baptism doesn't save any more than wearing a ring makes you married, but I'm married and I wear this ring and it's a symbol, right? If I can take this off to play basketball, I'm still married, right? The water baptism doesn't save you, but it identifies a believer with Jesus died for my sins, He was buried, and He rose again, and because I believe in Him, He's my Savior and now He's my Lord. So go with the gospel, baptize and teach, that's what they're doing, and they're making many disciples, a good many disciples, not just two or three. 
but a good number of people have come to faith and are walking with Him. Now, what do we know about what happened to them as far as persecution is concerned in Derby? What does the text say about persecution there, Steve? Anything? doesn't say anything, does it? Which is interesting because the account of what they did ministry-wise in Antioch uh, involves persecution. And then when they go to Iconium, there's a plot to stone them. So they leave town just in front of the mob. And then they go to Lystra and Paul gets stoned and they think he's dead. They drag his body out of town. Now we go to Derby and we're just told he's they're there. They minister and a lot of people come to faith and start walking with the Lord as disciples who believed in Christ. And so Carol, I think most scholars assume whatever happened in Derby was relatively tranquil compared to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And it's interesting that in 2 Timothy, when Paul's writing later about this phase of his ministry, Dennis, he talks about all the tribulations and all the persecution he dealt with in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, but he doesn't say anything about persecutions in Derby. So apparently the, the city of Derby was not as violent, was not as threatening, as difficult. And so it's kind of nice after three really tough places in a row. And God's kind of like that. He never puts more on you than you can stand, but you can actually stand a lot more than you think you can. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So, boom. At one level, that is the end of the first missionary journey, except we've got to get back home. So, but rather than going overland home, they want to go revisit and follow up and see, not for their own benefit, but let's see how the people in Lystra who've come to faith are doing. Let's see how the new believers in Iconium are doing. Let's see how the new believers in Antioch are doing. Why is that something probably Steve and I on a missionary trip might not want to do? It's dangerous, yeah. They stoned him in Lystra. They were going to stone him in Iconium, and they were talking about at least beating him up and arresting him in Antioch. So it took a lot of guts for Paul to continue going, but that's just kind of what they do. So after a close brush, they go to Derby, see some disciples, but now they're going to revisit the previous three cities and do a follow-up ministry. Look at verse 21, middle of the verse. After they made many disciples in Derby, they returned. They backtracked with the Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. What were they doing there? They were, were they selling CDs, trying to make money? No. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples in each one of those cities, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, you know what, it's not going to get any worse than this. If you have enough faith, nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Is that what he says? You know what? Cheer up. It's going to get worse. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in each one of those cities, each one of those churches and cities, having prayed with fasting, Paul and Barnabas commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. They didn't believe in Paul and Barnabas. They weren't disciples of Paul and Barnabas. Our uh, commission is not to make uh, disciples of Brad McCoy or Jack Smith, or Homer Cox, or Pam Cox, or Shauna Mitchell, or Savannah Bowers. Our commission is to be a disciple of Jesus and to share the gospel of Jesus and encourage other people to become disciples of of Jesus. So just please be aware of that because sometimes people seem to forget things like that. Uh, in all three of these cities, he's visiting Jane. They're visiting, they're revisiting They'd faced intense persecution, even being stoned and left for dead. That's how bad, that's as bad as it gets, right? And yet they go back. 
uh, and they're going back because they've got a mission. Their mission wasn't just to see people raise their hand, sign a card, make a decision, say, yeah, I believe I'm saved now. It was to have people who claim to be believers begin to grow and express their saving faith. It wasn't just decisions. It was discipleship, right? Thank you. I'm glad somebody's awake. You know, talking to Russell's always awakened. You know, I recently, Janet, I really had a horrible nightmare. I dreamed I was preaching a really boring message on a Sunday morning. And then I woke up and I realized I was. And, and that, that was a, that was scary, man. That was a bad Sunday. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago, actually. It was really bad. But, uh, notice, I think this time, you know, the first time through, they're coming to town and they go to the obvious place. They go to the Jewish place of worship in these three cities because they already have the Old Testament and they basically preach Jesus from the Old Testament, right? And they have a pretty big profile. This time, I got a sneaking suspicion. You can check with Paul, Julie, in heaven. But I think they're going in more under the radar. They're not going to the synagogue and antagonizing the people who projected. They're trying to seek out the believers that make up the churches in those cities to follow up. How are they doing? Are they hanging in there? Have they doubted, pouted, and dropped out yet? Because some people will under fire. Uh, and what do they need to do? And so you notice in verse 22, they went back to those cities, even though it meant danger for Paul and Barnabas, to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and commending them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, the word soul in the Greek text is suke. We get the word psychology from it. It can actually mean several different things depending on context. Sometimes it refers to the seat of the consciousness, the soul, uh, the seat of our self-consciousness and our God-consciousness, the real us. We're promised at physical death the believer is absent. Our soul departs the body, which is buried or cremated or got blown up or disappears or whatever happens to it. And our soul, our, the real us, our consciousness, goes to be uh, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So quite often the term soul means the soul in that sense. But it can be used as here for things pertaining to the soul, to things pertaining to the spiritual life. It can't just refer to the self, the person generically, or it can refer just to people generically. There were 101 souls on the Mayflower, meaning there were 101 people on the Mayflower. So we're talking about spiritual follow-up and discipleship. And that makes sense, David, because what did Jesus tell the church then and now? Our number one job is to, to, be, to be doing, to be making disciples. Not just decisions, but disciples. And so he's following up the believers to make sure they're hanging in there, answer questions, encourage, uh, maybe to discipline some that are slopping around, that kind of thing. Uh, modern psychology has discovered one thing. You act like a slob, you're going to feel like a slob. You know, And that was already in the Bible, so we don't really need that so much. Um, then he says, through many tribulations, all of us are going to go through the kingdom of God. Now, when he went back to Lister and said, hey guys, uh, cheer up, it's going to get worse. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to get a lot of applause from the world, Clay, uh, for especially if the homeschoolers like beat maybe uh, one of the public school basketball teams. You know, They're really going to hate you then, You know, so get, just get ready for it. But uh, you think he had any, think Paul had any credibility in these cities? Maybe like Lystra? When he says, hey, if you're a believer, you're going to probably face some suffering. 
Not in spite of the fact. A lot of times we suffer in spite of the fact we're Christians. They're suffering here because they're Christians. You think he's got any credibility? Paul, why? Why would he have credit? The city of Lystra knows he was stoned. Everybody thought he was dead. The mob dragged him out of town to get away from the legal technicality they had just violated. And the, the people went out that they were believers and saw him supernaturally resuscitated. And he probably should have died there. Some people think he actually did. So, and this is something Joel Olstein's not going to tell you. Oral Roberts didn't say. Kenneth Copeland, kind of the popular, have enough faith, nothing bad happens to you. Which is wonderful when you're on top of the pyramid scheme. But what happens when somebody, their child is kidnapped and murdered? You know, you know what you say to that person? If you'd had enough faith, that wouldn't have happened. Talk about victimizing the victim. Talk about making God a monster. I know a lot of parents, uh, through mentoring programs and through what little I know about the public schools, I know a lot of parents that are terrible parents. And their kids turn out halfway decent and they don't get kidnapped and murdered. And the parents, I'm sure, aren't believers at all. If they are, they're barely doing anything worthwhile spiritually. And since I'm a pastor, I can say stuff like that because I'm an expert, you know. It doesn't work like that. It's a lot more complicated than that. Now, notice, we talked a few weeks ago about the way God's sovereignty works with human responsibility. Uh, Andrew and I are both baseball players, so when he sees HR, he's going to think home run. Am I right? It's just kind of built into our DNA. But uh, for me, HR stands for human responsibility. DS stands for divine sovereignty. As Paul's following up the Christians in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, telling them it's not going to be easy. Forget about it being easy. Forget about it. if you have enough faith. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. It doesn't work that way. It works that way in heaven, but we're not there yet. Have you noticed? We're not in heaven yet. Okay? We're not there yet. Uh let me ask you this question. Who who's involved in spiritual growth? Is it us or is it God? Who, who's involved in Phyllis's spiritual growth? Is it Phyllis or God? Which one? Gotta be both. Yeah. He's encouraging them. That's parakaleo. James is a Greek scholar. He'll tell you that means exhort, coach them up, uh, uh, you know, get them psyched up to do the right thing. Encouraging them to continue in the faith, believing and living out what they believe, and at the same time commending them to the Lord. Because, and James and I, you know, the only thing that uh, sometimes keeps you going in the ministry is God loves TBF more than I do. God loves TBF more than James does. God cares for the uh, the uh, lost sheep or the runaway sheep more than we do. And really, they belong to him. And TBF belongs to him, not to the current pastor or the current youth minister. So both those things are true at the same time. If it's not working for you, you're not accessing God's grace properly. Maybe you've got uh, unrealistic expectations. Maybe you've got sin issues that you're playing with. Maybe you've got a lack of focus. There's something clogging it up. But when it happens, it's God working through you. So it's a, it's a cool thing where, you know, I often say, if you're really focusing on Jesus Christ, abiding in Him, which is supposed to be the spiritual engine that keeps us going, you can live a world-class Christian life and never notice how wonderful you are. Why? Because what's your focus on how great I am? What's your focus? If you're really abiding in Christ, your focus is on somebody else. Who's your hero? So Christ, so of course, you know, you come up here and you mow the grass, or you come up here and take the dirty diapers out of the bin on Monday morning, 
and nobody sees it. It's kind of like if a tree falls in the forest and there's nobody around, does it make a sound? They used to actually ask that question in the 60s. And the idea was, since man's the measure of all things, if a human being doesn't hear it, yeah, it makes a sound technically, but it doesn't count. And I always thought, that's ridiculous, you know. If a tree falls in the middle of the forest and nobody's around, does it make a sound? Yeah, and God hears it, okay? So the the, the key to your spiritual uh, status is not what you do at a church service, it's what you do in and for the Lord on business trips or when nobody sees you and you're not going to get any warm fuzzies from any human being, but what are you doing and why are you doing it? If you're doing good stuff for the right reason, even if nobody's going to notice because you love the Lord Jesus, that's what true spirituality is, and that's the Lord working in you to make you do that. Because religion doesn't motivate that. Religion just motivates you making brownie points with the religious system, right? Now, notice, very important, if we had more time, I'd go into it in a bit more depth, but notice, to stabilize the churches in these cities to make sure that ongoing follow-up, Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism is going to happen, uh, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders, plural, for each church. There's one church in each city, having prayed with fasting to really get a sense of which one of these fairly new believers is stable enough and uh, spiritual enough that we are going to entrust them with a special leadership position, which is really an ultimate servant position, because spiritual leadership is all about serving more greatly as, as opposed to being a, just a supervisor. But I want you to notice we have elders, notice that in verse 23, plural, plurals two or more, in every city, in every church. Uh, you know, everybody realizes that the New Testament says you've got elders, overseers, and deacons in the church. But exactly what does that look like? And it's a very popular view nowadays in American Christianity to say that the elders and the overseers, which are really two labels for the same uh, office, the elder talks about their authority. The old man on a battleship, maybe 40 years old, he's not really old, but he's, he's the old man. In fact, he's in charge of the ship. So an elder is like that, has that kind of authority. And then the overseer talks about their function. The elders don't just pick the one thing their wife wants this month and go into the elders meeting to make sure the wife gets what she wants. It's to oversee the whole thing. What's going to work best for the whole thing? Even if it's not what my wife wants or my, not my personal preference. Let's make sure this thing works as best as possible. So anyway, there's one theory that there should only be one elder over any local church and then deacons either under them or over them. Now, we all love the Southern Baptist, and I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. My mother goes to a Baptist church, and I speak there once or twice a year when I go down there. But Baptists historically have said the pastor is the elder. And then if they're going to be biblical, the deacons ought to be under that. But since the pastors come and go, at many Baptist churches, you have one elder, one overseer, and you have a board of deacons, that are kind of over them, that hire and fire them. So you've got some issues there. But you know what? God can work through all kinds of churches with different church government, okay? But I would I would disagree with that. I'm seeing in the book of Acts, in the book of James, you've got this issue called the elders of the church. Here, what does the text say? Verse 23, elders, plural, in every church. I think, to me, the local church is way too important to let any one person run it. To let any one person 
have veto power over it, including the pastor. And I am a pastor. And I'm a professional Christian. I'm a professional Christian 24-7. I get paid to be a Christian. And it's a tough job. That's with some of you people. You guys are good for nothing. I get paid to be good. You know, that old joke, right? But yeah, and you know what? Um, that's called the Presbyterian form of government. That's the label they use that people in ecclesiology who talk about this have come up with the Baptist version, the Presbyterian church uh, version. But to me, I think it really is important that you have a, a group of godly men overseeing the church that have an agenda for the overall church, not just their personal preferences, and that they prayerfully oversee the ministry to make it work as well as it possibly can, right? And you learn the ideal in seminary, and then you get to real churches and find out the real never lines up with the ideal perfectly. And some people get so shocked by that, they end up selling cars instead of uh, preaching. But uh, you deal with it, just like your kids aren't perfect. Listen, your grandkids aren't perfect. We've had uh, uh, Violet... No, we didn't have them. Uh, Violet and Eloise are the little ones. They don't trust us with them yet. We we had we've we've had custody of Lincoln and what's her name? I know her name, Vivian. Since Wednesday, Debbie went up there Wednesday night, got them. Uh, right now they've got bath phobia. They're perfect until bath time, and they freak out. They do not want to go to the bathtub. So Papa's got to take them in a bear hug, and they're kicking, and they're screaming, and then you got to try to. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe they had a dream or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, so Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and in uh, 6 hours, 27 minutes, and 18 seconds, we will be handing them back to the parents. But, uh, I mean, I love Lincoln and Vivian, but it, it's hard work, man. They will frustrate you. And on uh, on uh, on Friday, I had to go to the doctor and get my blood drawn and and get a test nobody really wants to take, but you have to when you get old and feeble, and they do it to you every year and make sure nothing bad's down there and stuff. And uh, so I did all that, and then I had to take custody of the kids in the afternoon, so I'm, I, I had to finish a lot of stuff I do on Friday afternoon early, which was very traumatic because I like my schedule. And then uh, Friday, so Debbie left me with them all afternoon, and after nap time was over, and boy, that was a trip. Uh, <laughs> We had, uh, we put the diaper on them and stuff, and we had a major mucho cleanup. It was just me, by myself. And it was rough, man. It was, wasn't easy. But, uh, you know, uh, sometimes as a pastor, you kind of feel like you're doing those, you know, 24-7 spiritual babysitting for these people. Uh, and uh, when I write my book, and I, I'll change the names, Russell, but trust me, you want, you, you guys don't pay us enough. You wouldn't believe some of the stuff we, we deal with, but we do it as best we can, okay? Now, by the way, when Paul says, look, I'm going to encourage you to hang in there, but ultimately I'm commending you to the Lord in whom you believe because pastors, if apostles can't do it by themselves, pastors can't make sure that you're always going to be joyous in the Lord and you're always going to be happy with what's going on and you're always going to be faithful and you're always going to show up for stuff and have a great attitude and always be consistent when you get out of these walls and stuff. All we can do is do the best we can because you belong to the Lord. The church belongs to the Lord and uh, I'm happy with that. But remember, I'm not rich or famous, so you might not want to go with that. 
Now let's look at verse 24 through 26. Finally, at the end of the end of the first missionary journey, they get back to their home base, Antioch of Syria. Uh, but they're spreading the good news as they travel. They followed up with the three cities uh, they had hit before Derby. But notice now in verse 24, uh, after they visited those three churches and followed up the believers and commended them to the Lord and say, hang in there and strengthen your faith and let's keep going. They passed through Pisidia. They went to Pamphylia where John Mark had dropped out. And apparently the trauma of all that was such they didn't really have much time to preach the gospel there because they were trying to talk John Mark out of leaving and the aftermath of all that and changing the whole plan. And when they had spoken the word in Perga there in Pamphylia, they went down to uh, Atalia, which is the seaport, and from there they sailed back to Antioch. They didn't go back through Cyprus, notice, the island, but they go back to Antioch of Syria, the home-sending church from which they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So, uh, yeah, they go back to Antioch and we're at the end of the first missionary journey. Now, why didn't they go back to Cyprus? A question that people ask. I mean, they leave Antioch, they go to Cyprus first thing, come up here, John leaves, John Mark leaves, then they go to Iconium, uh, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, then they go back to Lystra, Iconium, Derby, they go to Perga even, and this time get to preach the gospel, and then rather than going back through Cyprus like you'd assume they do, they just go back to Antioch. So it's kind of like they short-sheeted Cyprus, right? What happened? Well, we don't know. But here's my theory, and I'm pretty comfortable it's essentially what happened, okay? I think plan A was, hey, it's been 18, 19 months, and I know we've been texting the church in Antioch of Syria, but they're not getting our text because we don't have enough power power, so they have no idea what's going on. So let's go back home, give a report on what's been going on, thank them for their prayers, let's get a little R&R, rest and recuperation, and then we'll go back to Cyprus and follow up them. We followed up these guys in the Galatian churches, then we'll follow up Cyprus. I think that was probably plan A. Let's go back home, little break, and then go right back and follow up in Cyprus. That was plan A. But you know what? You've got to be flexible in the Christian life because things change. We've got two problems that come up. Once they get back to their home base, they get a report, Paul and Barnabas. Somebody did text them that day and it got through, that false teachers, they're usually called Judaizers, have visited the churches in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, the Galatian churches, and have said, Paul made it too easy. He's watered down the gospel. He told you all you've got to do is believe. Are you nuts? you got to work your way into heaven. Jesus gives you a chance to earn it on your own good works, man. And you guys are all Greco-Roman pagans. you got no shot. You've got to embrace Judaism, submit to the ritual, then you can come to the Jewish Messiah, but you've got to keep obeying the law afterward, or that will prove you never had it, or at least that you've lost it. So he hears that. Paul hears that. So what, what that means is the churches are on fire. They're denying the essence of the gospel and the reality of God's grace. And here he is, and he's getting that report. And so what does he do? Well, you might think he'd go visit, but he can't visit because in that same time frame, he gets a report not from the Galatian churches that they're wondering about whether they believed right or whether Paul was right or they got to become Jews and earn their salvation by the law. After he hears that that's going on there, he gets a report from Jerusalem, the home church, that a similar kind of teaching, not quite as bad, is being promoted 
And the church in Jerusalem is wondering whether or not Paul's lost his mind going directly to Greek pagans. So what does Paul do? Well, in response to the fact that churches are on fire theologically in a bad sense in Galatia, the Galatian ethnic uh, Christians there, Paul sits down, Ed, and he writes a book in the New Testament. What book did he write? Galatians. What the book of Galatians is all about? I'm amazed you're so quickly distorting the gospel. If anybody, even if we come back and give you a different gospel than we gave you, forget it. There's only one gospel. Jesus is the Savior. He's not a probator. You don't get probation by by faith. You get salvation by faith. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. So he writes that letter. And what does he do about the situation in Jerusalem? Well, let's see what happens. (coughs) Excuse me. Look at uh, chapter 15. We're actually going to talk about this meeting in Jerusalem starting next week. But in addition to the fact we're getting misinformation amongst the Galatian churches, we've got this happening in Jerusalem. Some men came down from Judea, the region where Jerusalem is, and began teaching the brethren in and around Antioch, because this is what's being pushed by at least a major party in the Jerusalem church. Unless you Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. You can't, you gotta be pre-qualify and become a Jew before you can believe in the Jewish Messiah. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with the folks from the Jerusalem area who were saying that, the brethren in Antioch, Antioch Bible Fellowship, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders and talk this thing out and hammer it all out. And that's what's going to happen in chapter 15. So, uh, I think plan A was, hey, we'll go back home, but we're not skipping Cyprus. We're just going to kind of fill up the tank a little bit, let them know what's going on, then we'll follow up Cyprus. But before they can do that, they find out these folks are basically putting the gospel away. Uh, and I think he would have gone to visit that situation, but then he also has the visitors from Judah saying similar but not quite as bad down here. So he writes a letter, which just happens to be a New Testament-inspired epistle, and then he and Barnabas go to Jerusalem and they sort it all out. Okay, But then, let's say, and I'm assuming at this point, that after the Jerusalem meeting, where they do hammer out the gospel, salvation is by faith to all who believe, Jew or Gentile, no prequalifications. Uh, when they get back to Antioch, I think Paul and Barnabas said, okay, now's the time, let's go back and re- follow up the believers in Cyprus, right? But what happens? Look at chapter 15 again. Only this time go down to verse 37. After the uh, event in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch, but look what happens. Uh, verse 37. In fact, verse 36. After some days... Paul said to Barnabas, they're in Antioch, they've been to Jerusalem to sort all that out, they've come back to Antioch. Paul Paul, uh, said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brethren in every city, including Cyprus. We'll start there. In which we proclaim the word of the Lord, the first missionary journey. Let's see how they're doing. And Barnabas was all for it, but he says, let's take Mark along. You know, the guy that bugged out the first time? Let's take him back. We'll do a rehab trip for him. But Paul kept insisting they should not take Mark, who had blown it. And a very strong word here in the text. They had deserted them in Perga of Pamphylia, had not gone with them with the rest of the first missionary journey. 
And there occurred such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, two wonderful spiritual believers who disagree on a personnel issue. Is it possible for two people of goodwill, both who are equally saved? I'm pretty sure Paul's saved. I mean, we could blame it on the fact he's, he's just pretending to be a Christian. He's not really a Christian. You want to do that? Some people, that's the solution to every problem in the New Testament. None of those people are really saved. It's only me, thee, and the fig tree. And it's certainly not the pastor. He can also be saved, obviously. Uh, no doubt about that. Now, I'm pretty sure Paul and Barnabas are both saved. You'll see them in heaven, right? Uh, but they disagreed on, on, a, on a judgment call. It's okay for believers to disagree on judgment calls, and you don't become my enemy, uh, Danny, if we decide... Uh, if I decide I want to paint my office yellow and you prefer orange and black, which actually is a better choice anyway. But we could disagree on that and not have to hate each other for the next 15 years and try to get over it, you know. So they actually disagreed on a personnel issue. So what happens? Well, you might think it's a mess because what happens is Paul and Barnabas split as far as missionary work is concerned. And the text tells you what happens. But Paul said, no, we can't do that. So verse 39, there was such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas don't go on a second missionary journey together. That they separated from one another functionally. Barnabas took Mark and where'd they go? They went to Cyprus. They need to go to Cyprus. They skipped over it. They were going to go back. They got to go back to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas. Well, watch this. You might think this is one holy mess here, right? Kind of looks like that, right? But that's not a mess. We'll show you what that is in a minute. But what happens is, rather than plan A, which was Paul and Barnabas with or without John Mark, just kind of retracing the whole first missionary journey, just check on everybody, made sense. Now we've got them disagreeing. And so Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Paul and uh, Silas, and they pick up Timothy uh, in here somewhere, right in the Galatian area. They go back and they retrace the cities they'd visited there. But watch this. Jenny, after they're done revisiting the group that was the heart of the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, they get the call to go to Europe. And according to church history, church tradition, which isn't in the book of Acts, but I think it is reliable, Barnabas and Mark, after they finish Cyprus, you know what they do? They go to North Africa. So Paul and Barnabas' plan A was, let's just kind of redo what we just did, which was good, which was fine. But God had a much bigger, better idea. No, I want Paul to go where he went the first time, the heart of it, and then to Europe. I want Barnabas to go to North Africa and evangelize most of that. It's all good. So as we often say, when you read about this disagreement, it's always unfortunate when Christians disagree, when they go different ways as far as ministry is concerned. Sometimes you say, oh, that's too bad. But God's saying, no, this is the way it looks like to me. That's a tapestry. That's the same tapestry. That's the front of the tapestry. That's the back of the tapestry. Has anybody done the research I ask you to do about what tapestry that is? I didn't either. I still have no idea what that is. But I'm going to find out. But I know that's the back of it. It looks like a mess. That's the front of it. That's the way God sees the first, second, third missionary journeys. That's the way it would be easy to interpret what's happening here. But God's a lot smarter than we are. Last two verses. Go back to chapter 14. So, Paul and Barnabas glorify... God and His grace by briefing the church in Antioch about all that had happened and the fact that many had responded to Christ, including many Gentiles. So when they arrived, Paul and Barnabas coming back to Antioch Bible Fellowship, end of the first missionary journey, and gathered the church 
not a building, but a group of believers there in Antioch together, they began to report how great they were and all the sacrifices they made and all the wonderful things they said. And then I told them, and then I did this, and then I did that. And they had a question, and I said the right answer, and everything was fixed in five seconds. That doesn't happen to me. Okay? I would say beware of preachers, missionaries, conference speakers, parachurch leaders who are always the heroes of all their illustrations, who every time there's a problem as they tell it, they say one thing, pray one prayer, quote one verse, and boom, everything's fixed. Uh, I want to follow that guy around, because I think it doesn't really happen like that in real life for him or for anybody. Uh, but uh, they're not bragging about what they did. They're reporting to the church that had prayed for them, that had supported financially this trip, all that God had done with them, how God had opened the door to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time there with the believers in Antioch. Does prayer meeting really matter? I think that these people have prayed for a year and a half. Paul and Barnabas have seen God do great things, and they realize they're just the astronauts on top of the spaceship. It's mission control that really makes it happen, and mission control is prayer meetings in Antioch that keeps the thing going for them. So that's pretty important. Uh, it's funny because this Wednesday is Wow Wednesday, as you know. Now, today is the annual First Hispanic Baptist Church uh, Festival at Fuquay Park. They do have a evening service at 7 at their church, but the conference or the, the festival runs from 2 to 6. Now, listen, I'm an Anglo, proud of it, but there's no Anglo church I know of that would have a festival outside from 2 to 6 and then have their regular Sunday night service. You wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't even bring it up. And frankly, I wouldn't want to do evening church after that. I'd be too tired, you know. But they're going to do a little bit of both, you know, so that tells you something. But uh, it's kind of come and go. Uh, they asked me, I'm the token Anglo speaker. Uh, federal regulations require you have at least one Anglo speaker at these things. So we're going to have a Spanish band, all in Spanish, Spanish speakers, all in Spanish. Then I get up there and... On hell from Walton will be my my translator. We work pretty well, so uh, I'm up at three thirty. So I'll be there by three, stretching, you know, warming up, uh, doing my vocal warm up, practicing my pronunciation of Spanish words, and we'll be doing that. But uh, in connection with that, I'm going to ask uh, uh, Rigoberto. He's supposed to know the exact number es- estimate. You know, it's going to be estimate of how many of his folks are going to come and have dinner with us and stay with us. But here's the thing. Uh, good mission trip reports shouldn't just focus on all the wonderful things we did and we gave up a week of our whole life and we did all this wonderful stuff for the Lord. It really ought to talk about and make the hero somebody other than the pastor that made the plane reservations or what you did in Kanoa one day, even though we're interested to find out what happened in Kanoa or La Resurrección or whatever you did or wherever you went. But, um, you know, I, I, we've been doing this since 91. That's 24 years, and probably more than 50 of us now have gone to Puebla. And with maybe one exception I can remember that stood out and really uh, did a job on my mind, uh, every time anybody has gotten up from these mission trips and shared about what's happened, I really feel like, the heart of the report and the essence of the report was very much about what God had done and just gratitude to have a chance to serve. And it was very edifying to people. And I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, which is a good thing because Tanglewood Bible Fellowship is a non-profit organization, so all you're giving is 